السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد so inshallah this is the uh, second class from this surah that we're currently making the tafsir of and that is surah al-ma'oon the 107th surah of the quran and we covered last week verse number one and and we started with verse number two which allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Ara'ayta الذي yukadhibu biddin fadhalika الذي yadu'u al-yateem do you not see the one who rejects yawm al-qiyamah the resurrection the accounting and then Allah Azza wa gives a description, he goes on to describe and give the characteristics of those people who reject the accounting before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the resurrection on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And the first example that Allah Azza wa gives, the first way that he describes them in, is that they are the people who yadu'ul yatim. Right? And this is um, you know, the different uh, views or statements of the scholars of tafsir, rahimahumullah, Concerning what this means to push away the orphan, right? Yadu'ul yatim. And we said that Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said that it means to push someone away from the rights that are due to them, right? The rights that belong to them. And we mentioned, I think, last the verse which Allah says, Those who devour the wealth of the orphan devour within their bellies the fire of hell, the fire of Jahannam, and it is an evil abode. And we gave the example also of Surah Al-Kahf in the story of Musa and Khadr السلام, when they're going on their journey, and one of the events that they come across, or one of the incidents that takes place, is the incident of the wall that is crumbling, that is then rebuilt. And when Khidr gives his explanation towards the end of that, of that passage in Surah Al-Kahf, he mentions that beneath the wall, was wealth that belonged to Yatimaini fil Medina, two orphan boys within the city. And then we saw that and we compared it with how the Prophet used to give the orphans their due rights. So when he came into Medina and he bought the land upon which he built his masjid from the two orphan boys, as mentioned in the narration of Sahih Bukhari, the narration of Urwa, Ibn Zubayr, rahimahullah, the two boys Sahel and, Su- and Suhail, Sahel and Suhail, the two orphan boys, and how the Prophet ﷺ insisted that they should take their rights. So Ibn Abbas says, to push away the orphan means that you withhold the right that is their due. Mujahid said, it means that you don't feed them. Right? You don't feed them. And we mentioned in the, in the um, last week the statements of the scholars concerning who these verses were revealed concerning, and we have the narration that says that it was concerning Abu Sufyan that he slaughtered a camel and some of the orphans came to take from the food and he pushed them away, right? And so some of the scholars of tafsir, they made tafsir of this verse with that same meaning of not feeding the orphans. And Abdullah and Mujahid said that it means to belittle them. Right? It means to belittle them. And uh, Al-Hasan al-Basri rahimahullah said it means to oppress them. And then we said that Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, he basically reconciled, gathered, and brought all of that together. And he said that the meaning of the verse is, the one who doesn't look after the, the orphan, doesn't give him his due right, doesn't feed him, and doesn't do any good towards him. Meaning, he oppresses him. So he's taken all of those statements from the scholars of tafsir that came before him, from the companions, the tabi'een, the tabi'een, and he came and he 
basically brought them all together because all of them are different descriptions of pushing away the orphan. Right? They're all different descriptions of pushing away the orphan. There is a qira'a a qira'a which we don't read, a recitation that's not used anymore. But it is a recitation that is attributed to Ali radiallahu anhu al-Hassan al-Basri and a scholar by the name of Abu Raja. And Abu Raja was one of those people who lived in the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but he only accepted Islam after his death. So he's not considered to be a companion, but he's from the most senior of the tabi'een. Right? And he narrated from Umar and Uthman and Ali and from the senior companions. They used to read this verse, and as I said, it's not a, a qira'ah that is used anymore, but it is something which is mentioned in the books of tafsir and qira'at. It is a shad qira'ah, meaning that it's a peculiar recitation. And they would say, فَذَلِكَ الَّذِي يَدَعُ Yada means to leave. Yada means to push away. Right? So the Qira'a Shada, they would say, The one who leaves the orphan, meaning that they don't have any sense of responsibility or goodness or kindness towards the orphan. Right? And there are many verses in the Quran, many hadith of the Prophet in which we are told the rights of the orphan in particular and how great the right of the orphan is in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah. From those verses in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 177, which Allah Azza wa Jal says, لَيْسَ الْبِرَّ أَن تُوَلُّوا وَجُوهَكُمْ قِبَلَ الْمَشْرِقِ وَالْمَغْرِبِ وَلَكِنَّ الْبِرَّ مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَالْكِتَابِ وَالنَّبِيِّينَ وَآتَ الْمَالَ عَلَى حُبِّهِ ذَوِ الْقُرْبَى وَالْيَتَامَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَابْنَ السَّبِيلِ it is not from righteousness and piety that you turn your faces towards the east or the west, but rather piety is to believe in Allah and the last day, the angels, the books and the prophets, and to give the wealth that you love to your relatives and to the orphans and to the poor, right, the masakin. And many of these verses and hadith, they bring together these two elements that we are going to have in Surah Al-Ma'un, the rights of the orphan and the rights of the poor. Right? فَذَلِكَ الَّذِي يَدُعُوا الْيَتِيمِ وَلَا يَحُدُّ عَلَى طَعَامٍ مِسْكِينَ Allah Azza wa Jal joins between these two rights. The rights of the orphan and the rights of the masakin. And other verses of the Qur'an do the same, such as this verse in Surah Al-Baqarah. In Surah Al-Isra, Allah Azza wa Jal says, verse 34, وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا مَالَ الْيَتِيمِ إِلَّا بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ حَتَّى يَبْلُغَ أَشُدَّهُ وَأَوْفُوا بِالْعَهْدِ إِنَّ الْعَهْدَ كَانَ مَسْئُولًا of the yatim, of the orphan, except in that which has within it goodness until they reach the age of maturity and fulfill the oath, for indeed the oath will be something that will be questioned. And that's another verse in which Allah Azza wa gives to us the rights of the orphans. In Surah Al-Fajr, verses 17, 18, again Allah Azza wa joins between these two concepts, these two elements of the orphan and the miskin, and he says concerning those people who don't follow Allah, don't believe in Allah, don't believe in the hereafter, and so on. Rather, they were those who wouldn't do good towards the orphan, and they wouldn't feed the poor. And Allah says in Surah Al-Insan, verses 8 and 9, وَيُطْعِمُونَ they feed the food that they love and they give it to the poor and to the orphan and the captive and they say we feed you only for 
the face of Allah, we don't want from you any reward nor any gratitude. And Allah says in Surah Duha, right? and some of the scholars said, look at how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the disbelievers in some verses, their characteristics when it comes to the orphan. And then we have the way that the Prophet was towards the orphans. But then we have a verse in Surah Duha in which Allah himself speaks about the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was good towards the orphan and how he looked after an orphan and how Allah showed care, divine care and protection for an orphan when he says to the Prophet in Surah Duha, Alam yajidka yatiman fa'awa. Did we not find you an orphan? And then we sheltered you. So the Prophet himself was an orphan. And Allah took care of him and he protected him and he gave him his, his love and his care and his protection. And he is the greatest of the orphans. And that's why we have within the Sunnah many ahadith that speak about the rights of the orphan and their status in Islam and their position. From them is the hadith of Abu Hurairah. Radiallahu an in, uh, in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the famous hadith where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, stay away from the seven destructive sins, right? Sometimes it's translated as the seven deadly sins, right? The seven destructive sins. And he was asked, what are they, O Messenger of Allah? And he mentioned them, ash-shibku billah, to associate partners with Allah, or sihr, magic, black magic. Waqatlu nafs allati harram Allahu illa bilhaq, and to commit murder upon an innocent soul. To devour interest or usury. And to eat the wealth of the orphan. Right? To eat the wealth of the orphan. There are narrations that are mentioned in some of the books of, of, uh, of, of hadith uh, and ansira and so on. That when some of these verses of the Quran were revealed concerning how serious an issue it is, especially when someone is, uh, you have on, on the one hand the rights of the, of the orphan. But then you have hadith and verses of the Quran that speak about those people who look after the orphans, right? Their guardians, their carers, and how serious it is an issue if they take their wealth and they mistreat their wealth or they use it in ways that isn't lawful. So some of the companions, when they heard these verses of the Quran, they said that we don't want to look after the orphan. We don't want to look after the orphan because it is such a serious responsibility. The wealth that belongs to the orphan, the way that you care for them, their rights, their responsibilities, the guardian is responsible. We know from the son of the Prophet and we mentioned that hadith as well, that if you do that correctly, one of the greatest rewards is that you have companionship with the Prophet in Jannah. But if you don't do that properly, and it's a fine line sometimes, if you don't do it properly, you have the punishment of the hell fire. You devour the fire of hell from that wealth that you use unjustly. So some of the companions said, we don't want to do so. So the Prophet then said to them, no. Does it mean that you don't look after the poor, the, the orphan? What it means is that you can't take their wealth unjustly. But what is right, meaning that you need it in order to look after their affairs and you spend upon yourself and them in justice and fairness because it is part of caring for the orphan, then that is something which is allowed. And then the companions started to do it again. So you have this hadith in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the hadith of the seven destructive sins. You have another hadith that is collected in Al-Nasai in his Sunan Al-Kubra. Al-Nasai has two collections of hadith. The famous one, which is Sunan Al-Nasai, and that's the one that we normally refer to. But Sunan Al-Nasai is a summarized version, or a, uh, not necessarily an abridgment, but he chose and selected a hadith from a much wider collection 
that he also authored or compiled, and that is called a Sunan al-Kubra, the major Sunan, which has thousands of hadith. And then from them, he chose the ones that he considered to be the most authentic, and he placed them in Sunan al-Nasai, the famous Sunan. This hadith is in a Sunan al-Kubra, but it is an authentic hadith. The hadith of Abu Shuraih al-Khuzai, radiyallahu anda, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Allahumma inni uharriju haqq al-da'ifayn haqq al-yatimi wa haqq al-mara'a. Oh Allah, I beseech you on behalf of the rights of the two ones who are weak in my community, the right of the orphan and the right of the woman. The right of the orphan and the right of the woman. Meaning that the Prophet is asking Allah to help those people who are oppressed from these two groups. And another explanation of this is that the Prophet himself will stand on their behalf on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. He will be the one to stand on their behalf and he will be the one to argue for them in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala against those people who oppress them. In another hadith, this time in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, on the authority of Sahal ibn Sa'ad radiyallahu an, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, and this is the famous hadith, أَنَا وَكَافِرُ الْيَتِيمِ كَهَاتِينِ فِي الْجَنَّةِ وَأَشَارَ بِالسَّبَابَةِ وَالْغُسْطَى The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, I and the one who cares for the orphan are like these two in Jannah, and he brought his index finger and his middle finger together. The scholars, if you go, and this isn't something which we're going to go into necessarily, uh, you know, because it's not really part of our class, but an interesting thing for you to, if you want to go into this further, is the meaning of kafirul yatim, the one who's a guardian for the orphan, right? Because it's very common today, you know, many people who want to sponsor orphans, what do they do? They just simply give money, right? Simply send your money, send it to an organization, send it to a charity abroad, and they do the rest, right? And there's an interesting discussion amongst the scholars of hadith and the explanation of this hadith as to what it means to be kafirul yatim. Is the one who's a sponsor of an orphan, a guardian of an orphan, simply about the money element, the financial responsibility, the financial commitment of giving money to look after an orphan? Or is it a much more comprehensive understanding that the one that gives a, uh, a guardian of the orphan, the care of the orphan, is someone who doesn't only deal with the financial aspects, but with aspects of tarbiyah, of upbringing, of education, of everything else. And therefore, if you just give money and you, you know, subcontract almost, right, you're subcontracting this to someone else, do you get the same reward? Or is it the same? Obviously, there is a reward attached to that. But is it what is being mentioned in this hadith? Is that the meaning of kafir al-yatim? Is it sufficient just to give money? And the scholars have like an interesting um, you know, discussion concerning this and so on. Clearly, this is a new thing, right? Because before, in the past, you didn't have organizations and charities that would take money from you and then employ people to look after orphans. However, what you will find, therefore, is that the majority of the classical scholars of hadith and the explanation for this don't confine kafir al-yatim or the sponsor of the orphan simply to financial commitments. But they mention that he has to look after them or that person looks after them in terms of tarbiyah, in terms of sometimes bringing them into their own family, giving them you know, support, emotional support, love, care, education, tarbiyah, everything else. That's the meaning of this hadith. And obviously contemporary scholars, you'll find some that will say, no, if you have money and you give it to someone who will do all that for you, then inshallah it's enough. And others say, no, it's not enough. But anyway, that's something which, uh, which I think is an interesting thing to, um, uh, to cover. Sorry, did I not cover all of the seven deadly sins? Some uh, Harris just online just said um, that I didn't. 
Okay, so let's go back to the hadith. The hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, the seven destructive sins, destructive sins. Ash-shirk number one, black magic number two, killing an innocent soul number three, number four is devouring interest, number five, eating the wealth of the yatim of the orphan, number six, to run away from the battlefield, and number seven, to slander someone who is chased. To slander someone who is chased. So, uh, Wais is asking, is it seven deadly sins? Are they specific or can there be other sins? There are other sins which are mentioned like that also have major punishments and so on. You know, like, so for example, someone not praying, right? someone who leaves the prayer and so on. There are other seven deadly sins. So the seven deadly sins doesn't mean that these are the only deadly ones. There are others as well. But the Prophet ﷺ gathered these together in a hadith as he would sometimes when he's speaking about good deeds, the best of deeds and so on, he would group some of them together. Uh, okay, another hadith in which we have also the, uh, and also in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, in which we have the same uh, emphasis on the rights of the orphan. The hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, which a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he complained of the hardness of his heart, that his heart was hard, right, that he couldn't contemplate, couldn't cry, couldn't bring tears to his eyes and so on. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, in aratta, in aratta, if you wish for your heart to become softened, then feed the poor and wipe your hand over the head of the orphan. Feed the poor and wipe your head over the, hand over the head of the orphan. Right? And this is why some of the scholars in this hadith, when they give the explanations, they say it is not just simply about the financial part of these actions. Right? It's not just about giving the money giving it to a charity, sending it abroad, giving it to someone to go and do it on your behalf. The way that the heart becomes soft is that you actually go to the poor people yourself. You see the situation that they're in. You're reminded of Allah's blessings and favors upon you. And when you have that interaction and you give them that food or you sit with them and you eat them or you feed them, that's where the softness of the heart comes in. Or you go to an orphanage and you see the children and what they're going through and you hear their stories and what they went through, that's where the softness of the heart comes in. Otherwise, it's literally, you know, like most stuff that you buy online, right? You have a screen, your transaction takes you 10 seconds, it's done, and you don't really think about it again, right? You have no interaction. And so, therefore, people that, you know, and, and we, all, we all do this, sending charity online and so on, you don't necessarily get the benefits that are mentioned in this hadith. Because the benefit, the reason is that the Prophet wants you to go and see. Right? And it's like seeing visiting the sick. Visiting the sick is about actually going and sitting with them and spending time to them and seeing the situation. Because that's where you get the reminder and that's where you get the softness of the heart. The hadith of giving with one hand, so to the extent that the other one doesn't know, right, has different interpretations. One of them is that it means that other people don't know, right? Not that you don't know necessarily. And another one is that you give, but you don't necessarily know how much you're giving. But even on that second interpretation, doesn't mean that you can't physically give, right? So if you're giving, but you're not quite sure how much you've given, you just like whatever you have, you give. 
but the physical act of actually doing that yourself rather than doing it online because online I think you can't even do that can you do a random like you can't right you're obviously going to put a, a figure in right you close your eyes on the keyboard <laughs> and, and you're bankrupt because you just like put too many zeros in but it's something which you're going to physically do how do direct debits work but you still know them you forget <laughs> no one else forgets so, um, but that's the problem, right? Direct debit, standing orders, everything has a fixed amount, right? But the, I think the, the interesting point that you will find in the classical uh, explanation of these hadith is how much they stress the physical element, right? Because we've now divorced that side, right? For us, charity has become very much a online transaction, right? Or a subcontracting transaction, right? That we do. And to some extent, that's fine. You know, like when you have a good amount of zakat that you're going to give, if it's like a lot of money, okay, sometimes you think it's better just to give it to someone who can go and deal with it responsibly and so on. But when it comes to individual things, and I think as a point of tarbiyah for our children, especially for our children, right, when you want them to understand the rights of the poor and the, and the weak and the, and, and the orphans and so on, we kind of grew up because when we were young, I think most of us didn't have this online stuff anyway, so it's slightly different. Now our children only know this online, so that's all they're going to know about zakah and charity and sadaqah. It's just like, you know, shopping online, right? What's the difference? It's just a different website. That's all there is. So the you know the actual physical element of, of and it's not necessarily they have to go and give them the money, but spending time with them, sitting with them, speaking to them, understanding you know that situation. That's where that softness of the heart comes in, and that's why you find the companions like Ibn Umar and others. They would you know every day make sure that they go and see some of the poor and some of the people who are needy. They would spend time with them. They would eat with them. They would feed them. Because it's about spending time with them. It wasn't that they would just go or say to their servants, because they were not servants, go and feed them, right? Go and send food somewhere, go and... They would make sure that they're with them. Because that's where you get that softness of the heart coming in. I want to ask you, um, you talk about the orphans. What about when fostering and um, adopting children? Would that, would that fall into that as well? Because sometimes when you foster... Yeah, because if they're orphans... What about them are orphans if they still got parents whose parents don't want them anymore? For one reason or another, they can't look after them? I don't know if, 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 if you um, like foster someone who a child that has parents but for some reason they've been split up I don't know if that would necessarily count as the same thing but there's still a great reward like if they have no one else for for like inshallah like for all intents and purposes they have no parents yeah. and you have that intention then inshallah you, you can have that reward also on that because sometimes when you foster and you adopt there's a um, the state will provide money. That money that the state provides, is that considered the orphan's money? It will come from the state? Or is it I don't know. The money that the state provides for the orphan or for the child, uh, you need to check what that's why. I don't know. Okay. They give it to look after the child, they do. So yes, yeah, so not only when they give like money to look after the child, it means that you can you, know, you spend it reasonably upon your own, I mean, like your utilities, your bills. It includes you as well, right? So okay. that would be part of it. Uh, question online, Sumira, what made the contemporary scholars say the reward for looking after the orphans is the same? F See, I knew. This is always what happens, right? When I, <laughs> when I go off on a tangent, then the whole lesson just becomes like a fiqh class. Is the same for financial contributions alone? Also, how contemporary was this opinion when first suggested? I don't know how contemporary the opinion was, but those scholars, for example, who say, inshallah, you have the reward, that's what they say, right? Inshallah, if you did it with that intention, you get the reward. And, you know, we have, like, organizations now where literally they're employing people to do the education and the tarbiyah and so on. But I'm still slightly skeptical because the way that you would look after a child if you were directly involved is different to employing someone who's looking after 30 children, right? It's like a, a classroom teacher, right? A school teacher. Are they any good? I don't know. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, so, in your opinion, will there be an Islamically ethical problem when charities use this hadith, promising similar reward? I don't think that there's a, necessarily a problem in using the hadith. I think the issue is more a personal issue for us, right, in terms of understanding what it means, what the Sharia intends, and when the Sharia brings these types of concepts in the Quran and the Sunnah, it's not just for, you know, it's, it's actually meant to, it's a wholesome understanding, right, because you want that child to have a loving, caring upbringing, just as we would give it to our own children, and Allah knows best. In Islam, do we class a child as only one parent as an orphan or is it when both parents have passed away? In Islam, a child who has only one parent is classified as an orphan, right? So uh, if the father passes away, they, they classify them as an orphan. So Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah was classified as an orphan, even though his mother was alive and she lived for a good number of years. Allahu Akbar. But I think, I think so. I think if they have one parent and one parent passes away, but normally it's the father when he passes away because the father is the one who's responsible for the financial commitment and providing and, and, and spending and so on and so forth. So Allah knows best. And the final hadith that I had on this topic before we can hopefully move on is the hadith of Abdullah ibn Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, also in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, which is, this is a nice hadith. Uh, it is a hadith in which he says that I was playing as a young boy. Or Abdullah ibn Ja'far ibn Abi Talib is the son of Ja'far. Right? Ja'far is the older brother of Ali radiallahu anhu. Ja'far died, right? He was martyred in one of the battles. Mu'tah, right. In the battle of Mu'tah. So this is his son, right, in this hadith. I was a young boy playing, and I was playing with the two sons of Abbas, radiyallahu an. They were Qutham and Ubaidullah. Qutham, not Abdullah, but Ubaidullah. And the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam was riding, and he came past us, and he said to one of them, bring Abdullah, hold him up so I can put him onto my riding animal. So they did so, the hadith goes on, but the point is that he says, the Prophet ﷺ wiped over my head three times. And every time he wiped over my head, he said, Allahumma khalif Ja'faran fi waladeh. Oh Allah, do good to the children of Ja'far. Right? Do good towards the children of Ja'far. So that's a nice hadith. So the Prophet ﷺ would actually do this personally, right? This is something which he would do. The orphans from amongst the companions, and that again going to that point of, or the, the person who asked the question, Ray, online, his mother was alive, Ja'far, Abdullah bin Ja'far, his mother's alive, but his father, Ja'far was the one who passed away, but he's, you know, he's, he's looking after the orphan, and in this case, he's also his cousin's son. So, this is verse number two, from the characteristics of these people, is that they push away the orphan. Verse number three, and they do not encourage others to feed the poor. And I think we mentioned very briefly last week how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't say that they don't feed the poor. He says that they don't encourage the feeding of the poor. Because if someone doesn't encourage others to feed the poor, then it's less likely that they would feed the poor themselves. Right? Someone who doesn't encourage you know, their children to pray and so on, it's probably because they don't pray themselves. Right? Someone that doesn't encourage others to give sadaqah, it's probably because they themselves aren't in the habit of giving sadaqah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes a step before, doesn't even mention that they don't give or they don't feed the poor, it's that they don't actually encourage others to feed the poor. Right? They don't encourage others to feed the poor. And there's some narrations that some of those people of Quraysh, they used to say, why are you feeding the poor? Right? 
and, they, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this in the Quran in, in, in Surah uh, Yasin. أَنُطْعِمُ مَنْ لَوْ يَشَاءُ اللَّهُ أَطْعَمَ Should we feed those, they used to say, should we feed those people that if Allah willed, He would have fed them. That's the thinking of Quraysh. Right? These people who had wealth and power and honor, why should we feed those people? If Allah had wanted to feed them, He would have fed them. Right? Allah wants them poor, so that's why we shouldn't feed them. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah is saying, this is the attribute of those people who have disbelief, who have hypocrisy, who turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who don't believe in yawm al-qiyamah, that they don't even have that kindness in their heart and that sense of you know, what, is, what we would today call humanity, right, insaniyah, that they wouldn't even go and help the poor and the orphans and the needy. And they would say, Why should we feed those people? If Allah had built, he would have fed them. Muqatil rahimahullah said, they don't encourage themselves to feed the poor. Right? So they don't even encourage themselves. They feed, I mean, they're, they're, they don't even have that inner debate within themselves, that inner discussion in their minds. They don't even feel the urge that they should go and they should, they should feed the poor and the needy. And others said, and Imam al-Mawardi rahimahullah said, they don't feed them and they don't encourage it and they don't command others to do so but rather they were people who were stingy. And they would make excuses such as the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Yasin, and they would say, should we feed those that if Allah had willed, he would have fed them. And that's why some of the scholars said that if they don't even encourage the feeding of the poor, then it would have been extremely unlikely that they would have fed the poor themselves. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, the faqir is the one who has nothing, doesn't have enough for you know, they look from meal to meal. They don't have enough to sustain themselves from one meal to the next meal. Right? And generally in the Quran, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions faqir by itself, the word faqir, or the word miskin, it includes both. But when the two are brought together, al-faqir and miskin, or fuqara and masakin, when they're brought, brought together, then they are differentiated. There is a difference. Like in the verse of sadaqah or zakah, إِنَّمَا الصَّدَقَاتُ لِلْفُقَرَاءِ وَالْمَسَاكِينَ so when Allah Azza wa Jalla in the Quran just says faqir, it means faqir and miskin. And when Allah says miskin, it means faqir and miskin. But when Allah brings them together in one verse, faqir and miskin, there is a difference between the two. Right? A faqir by itself or miskin by itself, a faqir is someone who doesn't have enough from one meal to the next. Right? They're literally from hand to mouth, literally they're looking for where the, where's the next meal going to come from? Where are my clothes going to come from? Where is this going to come from? They're literally living that kind of lifestyle. Whereas a miskin is someone who owns possessions, they have something, but it's not sufficient for them and their families. And that's why in Surah Al-Kahf, when Allah Azza wa Jalla, again in the story of Musa and Khadr alayhi salam, when they go on the ship, what does Khadr say about the ship? As for the ship, it belonged to masakin. Meaning that these were people who were poor, but they owned a ship, right? So that means that they have possessions, they own something, but it's not enough for them. What they make, the sustenance that they have from that ship isn't enough to provide for them and their family, so they are still considered to be miskin. Allah Azza wa says, and we mentioned the verse already in Surah Al-Insan, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions feeding the poor and the orphans and the captives. Allah Azza wa says in Surah uh, Al-Balad, to feed 
on a day of extreme hardship, an orphan that is relative, a relative or a miskeen, a poor person who is in distress. Right? And again, Allah Azza wa combines between the two. And another surah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about why the people will go into the hellfire and they will be asked, ما سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرْ right? What caused you to enter into the fire? قَالُوا لَمْ نَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ وَلَمْ نَكُمْ نُطْعِمُ الْمِسْكِينَ They will say, they didn't believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they didn't used to pray, and they didn't used to feed the poor. In the Sunnah and the Hadith in Imam Ahmad and Ibn Hibban, the Muslim of Imam Ahmad and Ibn Hibban on the authority of Al-Bara ibn Azib, radiyallahu an, that a Bedouin man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he said, O Messenger of Allah, teach me an action that if I perform it, I will enter into Jannah. The Prophet said to him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, you have asked a question that is short and concise, but it is extremely you know, long and, and, and it is something which contains you know, a lot of uh, benefit in it. He said to him, Free a poor person, free someone and free someone. He said it twice but in slightly different wordings. So the man asked, are they not the same thing? He said, no. Itqun nasama is when you free someone yourself. And fakkur raqaba is when you pay part of someone's price in order for them to free themselves, meaning people who are in slavery and they free themselves. And do good to, one, to the one who is your, your relative. And if you are unable to do so, then feed the hungry and give water to the thirsty and order good, command the good and forbid the evil. And if you can't even do that, then withhold your tongue except from that which in which there is goodness or benefit. Right? And this is an authentic hadith in the Muslim Imam Ahmad and the Sahih of Ibn Hibban. And then we have the hadith, the famous hadith in Sahih Muslim on the authority of Abu Hurair Allah will say, on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Ya Ibn Adam, Maridtu Falam Tu'ibni. O son of Adam, I was ill and you didn't visit me. So the slave will say, Oh Allah, how could I visit you when you are the Lord of all that exists? And Allah will say, Subhanahu wa ta'ala, did you not know that someone, one of my slaves, was sick, was ill, and you didn't visit them? Had you done so, you would have found that with me, meaning its reward. And then Allah says, O oh, son of Adam, I asked you for food and you did not feed me. And he will say, Oh Allah, how can I feed you when you are the Lord of all that exists? And Allah will say, Do you not did you not know that so and so was hungry? And they asked for food, but you did not feed them. Had you done so, you would have found its reward with me. O son of Adam, I asked you to give me water, and you didn't water me, or give me water. And he will say, O oh Allah, how can I give you water when you are, or quench your thirst when you are the Lord of all the worlds? And Allah will say, so and so asked for you to quench their thirst, and you didn't do so. Had you, did, had you done so, you would have found its reward with me. And in the hadith of Sahih Bukhari and Tharchi of Abu Hurairah, radiyallahu anda, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, three people Allah will not speak to them on the day of judgment, nor would he look towards them on Yawm al-Qiyamah. The first is a person who takes an oath by Allah, saying that I bought such and such a thing for such and such a price in order to sell it for a higher price, and they didn't buy it at its original price, meaning they're inflating the price and using Allah's name in the process of doing so. And the second is the one who takes a false oath after Salatul Asr in order to devour the wealth of someone else unjustly. Right? Why after Salatul Asr? Not necessarily. Why the Asr time? 
Sorry? Uh, no. What happens after Asr every day? Angels the angels take the actions up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and the third person is the one who was asked for water and they don't do so. They don't give them water. Allah Azza wa Jal will say to them, Today I will, I will withhold my grace and my favor from you just as you withheld it from that person. Right? So these are the three people that Allah won't speak to and he won't look at them on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Nasabullah Al-Afu Al-Afiyah. And the hadith of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu an that is collected in Al-Bazzar and Al-Tabarani, the Prophet said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, if he does not believe in me, the one who has a neighbor that goes to sleep hungry and he knows and he doesn't do anything, doesn't feed them. It's not from us, the one who has a neighbor who goes to sleep on an empty stomach hungry and they know and they don't do anything about it. And the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma in Sahih al-Bukhari that a man came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he said, Ayyul Islami khair, what is the best type of Islam? And the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam, tut'im al-ta'am wa taqra'u al-salama ala man arafta wa man lam ta'arif that you feed people and you give the salams to those that you know and those that you do not know. And in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma that is collected in al-Tabarani he, the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the most beloved of people to Allah are the ones who are most beneficial towards others. And the most beloved of actions to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is when you enter happiness upon another Muslim, or you take away from them a hardship, or you fulfill on their behalf a debt that they owe, or you take away from them hunger that they are experiencing. And if I was to walk with a brother of mine in some need of theirs, it is more beloved to me then making itikaf in this masjid of mine, meaning the masjid of the Prophet in Medina, is more beloved to me than making itikaf in my masjid for a whole month. And whoever withholds their anger, even though if they wish to, they could have exacted revenge, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will fill their heart with pleasure on the day of judgment. And whoever walks with one of their brothers in a need of theirs in some, to help them in something until it is done, then Allah azza wa jal will make their feet firm on the day that all other feet will slip. Right? It will make them steadfast on the day that other people are not steadfast. So these are a hadith, verse of the Quran, a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that speak about the virtues of these two amazing acts of worship. Looking after the orphan and feeding the poor. And how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah is describing those people, it is a sign of nifaq, a sign of, 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 of ingratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a sign of fisk and evil, that a person doesn't do good towards the orphan and he doesn't feed the poor. And then Allah Azza wa Jal says in verse number 4, فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ فَوَيْلٌ لِلْمُصَلِّينَ yeah. any, any questions so far from here? Yeah, I, have, I have a few online. Hanifa is asking, does the mother get the reward for taking care of her children if their father has passed? Would that be taking care of the orphan or is it different, different because they are her children? Allahu I don't know. She, she obviously has a reward if she's a single mother and she's taking care of her children. It is a great reward if, then if she has like a husband to help and so on. But whether that is looking after the orphan in that sense, I, Allahu I don't know. Because it's her child, right? That's her right. She has, she has to do so. But as 
someone who sponsors an orphan, it's an act of sadaqa, an act of, that is voluntary. It's not a wajib act. Whereas looking after your own children is something which is an obligation. But no doubt there is a great reward. And, and, and the reward of obviously looking after your children and giving them tarbiyah is greater than the reward of what the Prophet ﷺ mentioned for the one who sponsors the orphan. If a child's parents separate or get divorced, is a child also classed as an orphan? No. That's not an orphan. That's not an orphan. Sorry? Even if they don't remarry, it's still not an orphan. They're not classified. An orphan is someone whose parents pass away or one of them passes away. It's not someone whose parents are, are divorced or, or, or split up. When you go to any Muslim country and you see beggars asking for food, water, money, one... What does one do? What does one do? How do you know what it says? Can you see this? You are using it. What does one do? You are often told by guides not to give and so on. Yeah, this is a difficult issue, now, right? So you have people, and you know, I've I think all of us probably have experienced this firsthand. We, you know, people outside of the masjid, and they say, oh, you know, like I don't know, my car broke down, I need ten pounds, or marrow petrol, I need ten pounds, and and you think, okay, here's ten pounds, and then you hear, oh, he came to Kaka and Amin and Sajjan, and and now, mashallah, he's made a hundred pounds because everyone like gave him money and so on. So. That's, that's a problem. And I know also in, in, when we were studying in Medina and so on, there used to literally be groups of people from a certain nationality that would come, especially in times of Ramadan and Hajj. And there, it's literally a gang where they, where they go and they collect money and they come back. And I, I've seen them literally with my eyes openly doing this. Public view. At the end of the night, like midnight or something, they were sitting together and they're counting the money and they're distributing it. Like literally in front of everyone. By the Haram in Mecca, I saw this. Like with my own eyes, like in the middle of the night, so there's not many people around. But it's not exactly private, it's in the courtyard, like it's the, it's the haram, like no one goes to sleep around, everyone's awake. And they're literally there and, and, they're, and they're doing so. And Allah knows best like why and whatever, but it, it's something then which doesn't give you that, you know, that, that same sense of. But then a number of our teachers used to say, even just give them a real, right? just give them a pound, don't give them much. But if someone asks you, give them something, don't, don't, don't say no. And so on. So I, Allahu alam, I don't know. Like it's one of those difficult like situations, um, especially if you suspect the person, you don't think they're genuine. And there was lit there was a news report. Was there a news report like a few months ago? Where it's like, yeah, <laughs> I watched that as well. There was a news report of, of like people interviewing, right? They were interviewing people who actually do this as a living, who live in a nice house and they drive a decent car and so on. Like they live in, they have a home and a car and everything, but instead of going to work. They come and, and they and they sit on the street and with their with their you know with their cardboard signs and so on, and it's tax free uh, and, and and they get money and so on. So that makes you skeptical, right? That, that then and it's unfortunate that when you have that, the people who are genuine, who are needy, who are homeless, you how do you differentiate between the two? Now how do you know the difference between the two? That is a genuine like problem and it is a genuine like issue that we face. And Allah like how you deal with that, Allah knows best. Surely, if a person says, you know, there's two extremes as always. One is you're never going to give to anyone, and then obviously that can harden your heart. Yeah. And the other one is you give to everyone the same amount, and then you, yeah. you, you get disheartened when you find out something went wrong, which is why you said your, your, your yeah. teacher says at least give something just to keep the heart. Yeah. I think to give something or to give it to people that you trust and know or to give it through you know like through a trusted organization that, that they know people or a group of brothers and sisters will come together and you know you have people who are doing this now and so on so you know inshallah there's like always ways around it um, but either way you get the reward 
So even if the guy was lying and cheating and so on and he took 20 pounds from you or whatever you took, you have that reward, irrespective of that person's honesty or their dishonesty. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's the best. The verse, Yeah, so that's why some of our teachers used to say that, right? And as for the one who asks, then don't turn them away, right? Don't reject them. That's why some of our teachers used to say you don't want to fall into that verse. But that verse isn't speaking about people who are being disingenuous, right? People who are who are needy, who are just pretending to be. That's not what the verse is speaking about clearly. It's not referring to those people. The problem is when you know or you suspect, right? Or you you know, you, you literally have an issue where where you where you think that someone may not be genuine, that's where the problem comes in. And Allah knows best. Okay, verse number four, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, musallin." So woe to the people who pray. Right? And I'm a bit reluctant. Obviously there is another verse right after this. Woe to those who pray. Those people who are heedless in their salah and in their prayer. المصلين, so verse number four, Allah Azza wa says, Wail. Al-Wail, this is a, a word that comes in the Quran multiple times. Right? It's something which is a, a word that you will find throughout the Quran. And it is mentioned a number of times in the Quran in various verses. And it is always used as a warning. Always used as a threat of punishment. The word Wail in Arabic is always used as a threat and as a form of punishment. But what does it exactly mean? This is where the scholars differ. The word wail, what does it actually mean? One opinion, and there are two, like, if you like, two kind of general opinions. The first of them gives a very generic meaning. And that generic meaning of the word wail is that it refers to punishment and destruction and torment. Al-halaku al-shadid. Right? Terrible torment and punishment. So it's a very general meaning. It doesn't specify, doesn't speak about it, and so on. The second opinion is that wail is a valley in Jahannam, a valley in the fire of hell. Right? It is a valley in hell fire. Both of them essentially mean the same thing, whether it's a ter- terrible, painful punishment or it is a valley in Jahannam. Both are essentially the same thing. But many of the scholars of tafsir, when they would give tafsir of this verse or, or this word wail, they refer to it being the second, that it is a valley of destruction, of punishment in Jahannam. And this was the opinion that you'll find Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah supported, Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi, Al-Shawkani in his tafsir and others. Right? That they say wail refers to a valley in Jahannam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is threatening these people with Jahannam, right? with the fire of halfa wailun lil musallin. Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma said, meaning these are the people who are hypocrites. Right? And you know when we come into the next verse, inshallah ta'ala, next week, We'll go through that in more detail because we have all of the all of the different descriptions that are given concerning what this verse can refer to. But Ibn Abbas and others said it refers to the munafiqeen, those people who when they're in public and in open, they pray. But when they're alone or they're hidden away and no one can see them, they don't pray. And Imam al-Hassan al-Basri said it is the one who is a hypocrite if he prays at its proper time, if he prays the salah in its proper time, he doesn't hope for Allah's reward. Because he's a hypocrite, doesn't believe in Allah anyway. And if he doesn't pray in its proper time, then he doesn't fear Allah's punishment either. Right? 
So both of them are essentially saying the same thing because a munafiq, a hypocrite, will do both, right? People who don't pray except when others are around them and people who don't fear Allah's punishment and they don't hope for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's reward. Yes, always. There is no evidence for either of them. There is no evidence for either of them that I know. There is no... Yes, so yeah. But there's no evidence for, like in terms of like it being a valley of Jahannam. But there is a common like opinion amongst like the Salaf of Tafsir. And also Imam al-Tabari and others, they, they chose it as being the strongest opinion. So inshallah, we're going to stop there. Barakallahu feekum. There's time for Salat al-Isha. Next week, next week inshallah, we start the lesson at 9 o'clock. And next week, by the way, is our last lesson, inshallah, because then the week after, inshallah, will be the month of Ramadan. So we're going to be off for a few months, inshallah, until September. So next week will be our final lesson. Inshallah, we will finish the surah next week as well. Barakallahu feekum, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa